Welcome back to another episode of Season 3 of Stern Chats. Today's guest is Ether Gologli, Stern's Associate Dean of MBA Admissions and Program Innovation. Dean Gologli was recently named the MBA Gatekeeper of NYU Stern by Poets and Quants, a leading MBA resource. Dean Gologli has been at NYU Stern for 15 years, always in admissions. He helps to handpick the students who walk these halls, who have the right mix of EQ plus IQ that Stern is so well known for. Before Stern, Dean Gologli worked in marketing for some very well-known consumer product goods firms, including L'Oreal and Unilever. He has been hailed by numerous publications as a dynamic force behind building a strong and cohesive student body and is well-known to students as the admissions officer who understands them from the get-go. That's right. Dean Gologli also greatly enjoys improv comedy, which helps him read people and students in particular. In speaking with him, it's clear that the Dean is passionate about helping people realize their true potential. Well, Dean Gologli is an absolute wizard. He's a great guest and he's a fun guy to listen to. So I think everyone's going to love this episode. Let's start the show, Frank. All right, then. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. Hey there, welcome to Stern Chats. We're here today with uh, Easter Gologli. He's the MBA gatekeeper. We're so lucky to have him. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. So we know you. You know, we've all seen you around Stern. You're famous to us. But just for people that don't know you, can you give us like a 20-second intro? Introduce yourself to the people that don't know Stern yet. Don't know who I am? Yeah. Uh, my name is Easter Gologli. I'm the Associate Dean of MBA Admissions here at NYU Stern. So tell us a little bit about how you got to Stern. Uh, how I got to Stern? I assume you don't mean the F train today, which doesn't stand for fast. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, my, well, this is my third professional career. I started off uh, after being an economics major, which basically is common sense with graphs. There's usually three right answers in economics, of course, uh, where the lines intersect, the distance between the lines, and of course, the gap between where the lines are. I wish someone told me that before <clears throat> I took firms and markets. Yeah, I mean, those are basically your three answers. For micro, anyway. Because I'm thinking back now, and that's 100% true. I just would have said arbitrage. <laughs> <laughs> I think that applies. <clears throat> yeah, I think yeah. it applies. Yeah, my first job was in banking, commercial banking, up in uh, Boston. Did that for a few years, and I'm pro- very proficient with numbers, but I prefer people and words and talking. So I sort of moved from doing analysis to actually recruiting and training people how to do analysis. kind of created my own job. But ultimately, banking was not the field for me. It's great for many people, but... No, I'm not one of them. And so I went to business school myself. I studied marketing. And then I moved into working my summer internship at Mattel Toys out in uh, El Segundo, Los Angeles area, which was great. That's so fun. That Mattel. must have been yeah. super fun. <laughs> they make a whole bunch of great <clears throat> stuff. Well, oh. sure, is that a, that's Barbie. They make a Barbie, right? <clears throat> it is a Barbie world. And Ken. <laughs> and Ken. Yes. It's a Barbie world, and we're just living in it. No, hold on a second. Did you have the Barbie dream house when you were a kid? I did not Mm. have the dream house, but I definitely had a nice little crew of Barbies all bopping around. (laughs) The dream house, I remember, had the—I don't know how familiar you are with the product line. 
from Mattel in the 90s, but uh, they had an elevator in this dream house. It was like the best Barbie house. And like my a hand-cranked one. one? Yeah, it was like really, really good stuff. Anyway, working at Mattel, you guys made some quality products. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, it was fun. I mean, pretty much the first day, you know, there are people playing with Hot Wheels down on the ground, and I'm just down there playing with them. Oh, that's so cool. That is everybody's dream job, I think. It's absolutely yeah, it's just like so toys. much fun. Yeah. toys all over the place. Yeah, it was a fun summer internship. I, I learned a lot. I worked in the licensing group, so it was licensing in, so people would pitch different movies and things like that, and they'd try and get the toy tie-in. And, you know, I was sitting there looking at different scripts and things like that, thinking, well, would this be a good toy? I don't know. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's when you're really famous is when there's an action figure of yourself, so you know? you toyed with the future of you. <laughs> it's our first pun today. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely played with the idea. Perfect. But where to from there? Because um, yeah. we're so, still pretty far from expert recruiter. <laughs> yeah, we certainly are. So from there, um, I worked in marketing for many years. I went to Unilever, where I worked on everything from toothpaste to hand and body lotion to new product innovation, and then took a very short stint at, um, at L'Oreal, where I was in charge of lipstick and nail polish for Maybelline for the U.S., prior to coming to Stern. So just kind of a natural, sort of straightforward. Yeah, straight line. Yeah. So what we heard in doing a little bit of research on you was that sort of at every point in your career, you had one primary focus, which, you know, at Unilever, for example, was marketing, but then you always took on these ancillary roles of recruitment, and you would go out and find students to join the MBA programs or the undergraduate summer programs. What was always drawing you to that recruitment? Yeah, it's true. I mean, when I was, uh, like I said, in banking, I wound up doing recruiting and, and training for my primary job. And then at Unilever, I was always recruiting people from business school, always going down, doing comp- corporate presentations, doing, uh, you know, super day interviews and things like that. And one year at Unilever, I was in charge in my, in my spare time for uh, recruiting marketing for North America. And certainly at L'Oreal, I also was recruiting MBAs in, in the New York area. I think it's always that I recognize what an MBA can do for somebody. And I've been in that place, and I know how much of a difference it is when that recruiter comes and you really connect with that person. I remember exactly who the recruiter was who who I connected with when they came down from Unilever. And so I wanted to be always able to give back. And I always was involved with the summer interns who recruited in terms of training them and developing them. I know what it's like to walk into a strange place. It's your summer. It's the biggest thing in your life at that point in time. And for the companies... Sometimes the interns are a bit of an afterthought, like we have to have them, we hope they're good, we don't know what to do with them, you know. Yeah, nobody wants to be an afterthought. Yeah, no. And they don't want to, at least they don't want to feel like they're an afterthought, right? <laughs> Definitely not, and, and they're not, but I feel like sometimes you get so caught up in everything, and the 12 weeks or 10 weeks of the summer goes by so fast, that sometimes I think people get kind of caught up in what they're doing, and they forget how important it is for the people who are doing that internship. So I always took the time to give back, to train them, to welcome them, to integrate them, and... Of course, you know, whatever you wind up doing in your spare time is probably what you should be doing professionally if someone will pay you to do it. Oh, sure. And Stern definitely pays people to do that. They have an <coughs> incredible staff of people that are always looking for the best candidates all yeah. the time. So how did you wind up in, in your role at Stern specifically? Yeah, so the interesting thing was when I was thinking about making a change, I, the thing I liked about marketing was it, it's, it's helping people, um, whether it's the right shade of lipstick, the right kind of fragrance with a, with a hand and body lotion. And ultimately, one of the interesting things, one of the interesting contrasts is the difference between happiness and success. I always say if I was writing a book, the book would probably be called uh, The Goal is Happiness. And I think, unfortunately, people focus way too much on success, um, particularly people's parents sort of push you towards, quote-unquote, success. 
And success is not necessarily happiness. Success is a good thing, though. I mean, I can't fault parents for wanting you to be successful. But it is in the whole picture, that's for sure. Well, I think it's probably not defined. You know, we, we all have our different <clears throat> ideas of what success is. So are you <clears throat> trying to help us redefine what success is? I'm actually trying to have people focus less on success and more on happiness. Because ultimately, happiness is what it's about, right? If you're in economic terms, right, we're talking about maximizing marginal utility. But basically, it's how do you feel? Do you feel good? Do you feel satisfied? Do you feel fulfilled? And success is not necessarily that. You know, some people say, okay, well, you're the dean of admissions, that's very successful. I guess it is, but ultimately, for me, it's much more about what makes me happy. Leaving corporate, coming to nonprofit, you don't do it for the, you know, financial situation, right? So financially, I am far less successful than I was in corporate. But ultimately, I'm much happier. So to me, that's worth always, that's worth a trade-off. You know, when I came out of business school, people are like, was it worthwhile? My first week working at Unilever was great. I mean, I loved it. I loved doing marketing. And so when people said, you know, is it worthwhile? I'm like, yeah, after week one, my investments already paid off. My loans weren't. No, yeah. But yeah. my investment was. So instantly I'd already gotten the return I was looking for. And so I think sometimes people have these sort of definitions of what success is. But ultimately, you're your own barometer of what makes you happy. And I think one of the great things about sort of being in the 20s uh, in your life is you're started figuring out what it is that makes you happy and then starting to believe that what you know about you is right and you stop listening to your parents and you stop listening to your friends and you start trusting more and more your internal compass of, of happiness. So I think ultimately for me, I was more and more successful in marketing and I was less and less happy. And I think it's because I really enjoyed working with consumers, really enjoyed new products. And as they promote you, you get further and further away from that. I wasn't as fulfilled, and I knew that I had to make a move. The interesting thing is that, and I give Stern a lot of credit, the woman who was uh, the dean at the time, she was looking for somebody who could do marketing really well and also could do admissions. And it's interesting, our admissions office is a bit different than many. We do selection, the kind of the classic admissions part, who's in, who's out, and why. And, but we also do a lot of marketing. We do a lot of stuff with our website. Um, we do events. We do e-marketing. We do uh, videos. I mean, everything that's in the mix. So the job is half marketing, half selection. Some admissions offices are all selection. That's all they do, and they have other departments. But we're really an interesting mix. So they really wanted She, you know, she was a great admissions officer, but she really didn't know marketing. And I think the best people, you know, like they talk about like fives higher threes and sevens higher nines. Right? So if you feel insecure, you hire people who don't challenge you. But if you are smart, you know there's people smarter and you should surround yourself with them. And you're not challenged by that. You're complimented by it. She knew she didn't know marketing. She was a great admissions officer, didn't know marketing, wanted some expertise. So basically, I was the right fit. And I'm really thrilled that Stern's the kind of place that takes that type of risk on people and does that kind of different type of thinking. And it took about six months to convince her. Yeah, but yeah it did? Six I, months? Yeah, about six months. But I'm a good marketer, so eventually... <laughs> you eventually got... I eventually wore her down. You hit it from different angles? <clears throat> I go, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was, it was interesting. Uh, and, and, I, and afterwards, I asked her, I said, well, you know, were there, she's like, you're the best candidate by far. I just wasn't sure. <laughs> and I still remember the like last... Like that, one plus one doesn't equal two here. And you're like, <laughs> we can all agree that I'm the best <clears throat> candidate. Let's start from there. Yeah. yeah. Well, the funny thing was she, I remember she 
called me up. It was like a weekend or something, and she'd gotten back from some trip recruiting, and she was like, you know, I'd love to chat with you a little bit more. Yeah, but, you know, my, I can't talk right now on my phone. I'm like, I'm like, fine. You want me in Monday morning first thing? I'll be in Monday morning first thing. Tell me when, tell me where, and I'll be there. She's like, okay, come on in at 8.30, and we'll meet. So I came in, and she sat down, and she's like, do you know what you're getting into? And I'm like, no, of course I don't know what I'm getting into. I've never done this job before. Why would I know? And, uh, and she's like, well, it's a lot of work. And I'm like, yeah. I You're work. like, yeah, of course it's a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you know, I'm working right now at L'Oreal. It's like 16-hour days. I'm like, is it worse? And she's like, no. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a. Um, it's interesting. She, she thought the main hangup was going to be the work intensity. Whenever you're like pursuing a job, no one's ever like, well, it's going to be a little bit too much work. <laughs> like no one ever, no one ever thinks that. Well, the the thing about higher ed is that you know everyone sort of asked me like, oh, do you get your summers off? And I'm like, no, no <laughs> way, what? No, what a ridiculous question. Yeah. Well, that is and ignorant. I, and I think sometimes people come to higher ed or you know have this belief that it's going to be especially somehow this like amazing work life balance and super easy. And I'm like, no, we're this is an elite business school. Yeah, you know there are real real demands, real pressures. This is not the kind of I mean I'm sure there are those jobs somewhere in education yeah and this and that, isn't this isn't the place well, yeah. I'm sure she was probably also asking <clears throat> if you're ready for the type of work that higher ed offers which is probably a lot less direct and efficient you know you have so many more political issues to deal with and things move at a very different pace faster in some cases slower in others I'm sure that I'm sure can take an emotional strain or, you know, it is an emotional strain on whomever is starting in that world. Yeah, it's, it's a very different animal than corporate. And it's the best of both worlds, and it's the worst of both worlds. For me, mostly, it feels like the best of both worlds. But it's interesting because you basically, you really did take something that was like your hobby focus or just like your personal focus, which was the younger people, like the recruiting of people, and make that your full-time job. When you, when you think about interns in the summer and you have these like new candidates and like they want... They want to just do the best possible, and you're like trying to look at their potential. <clears throat> and now you're in a world where you're looking at students or admissions candidates, and you're trying to measure up their potential. Like, mm -hmm. what similarities and differences, you know, do you see between those two things? Like, what are you what are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, over time you start to develop, you know, a sense of what your what your superpowers are. I don't have a lot of superpowers, but one thing that I I do think I'm good at is seeing what things can be. I always thought people could kind of do that, but it's actually very hard for people to see what isn't. Most people can see what is. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, when I bought my apartment, it was ugly. It mm. was horrible. People walked into this apartment. They walked in for about 3.7 seconds. They went, <gasps> <laughs> and they ran. And, and it was... What was this yeah, thing? Yeah, Leo, I'm so, imagining a cavern. Is your, like, yeah. So, so imagine... All I can say is sort of like in 1980, there might have been this show called Miami Vice, and like coral, like this pink, horrible, Pepto-Bismol coral was popular for about, you know, a month. <laughs> there must have been a sale on this paint because in the apartment, everything was painted like this Pepto-Bismol oh. pinkish coral, horrific color. They hadn't cleaned the place. It was horrible. There were no 
covers on any outlets. The ceiling fan was hanging by wires. I will not even get into what the toilet looked like, why the seat was up. I don't know. Like <laughs> everything, dirty dishes. It was that it was, color. That color is still sticking with me because that color reminds you of being sick. Pepto Bismol color. There's nothing good about it. Nothing good about nothing that. Nothing good about it. And but, but you walked in there and you saw that and you were like, hmm, this is a work in Potential. progress. Yeah, I was like, this could be awesome because it was. Um, an open layout. It faced south and west. It had a tremendous amount of light. Hardwood floors, high ceilings, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the bones were amazing. And you knew that with the right work in the right directions, the transformation could be unbelievable. And so, you know, you kind of have this one thing that is glaring and overpowering, but it's obscuring everything that has potential. And now when people walk into the apartment, they're like, oh, my God, it's beautiful, it's lovely. It's and sometimes I forget. You know, and every time someone walks in like that, I'm like, yeah, it, it is It is rather nice now. Um, it takes a lot of work. But you can see what it can be. And most people can't get beyond that one thing. So for me, I, it's about seeing potential. And that's always been the case. So whether it's with um, hiring a summer intern, you know, selecting someone at Stern. And I kind of talk about a couple different things. I mean, there's sort of the, do they have the core assets, the core skills that you need, right? And that's sort of like your baseline. But then there's the stuff that kind of separates people out, sort of these X factors. And that's less a decision with the head and more a decision with um, more of the instinctual part of us. And that's another piece that I think people really, especially in business school, probably should be paying a lot more attention to is intuition. When we think about it as, as humans, as, you know, we've been around for 25,000, 30,000 years probably in some way, shape, or form. But the question is, how many years of those have we been actually civilized? One could argue we are still not yet civilized. One could say it's a couple hundred years. Maybe it's 5,000 years. And not many, honestly. I mean, right? 200? I mean, how many years have we been, quote, unquote, civilized? So that's the brain part of us. It's not very well developed. We like to think it's very well developed. It's actually not. Whereas the instinct part of us is incredibly well developed. Think about it. You could be walking on the street. You're on your smartphone. You're listening to music. You're texting somebody. You're, you know, there's traffic going by. There's all these things. You're lost in a million thoughts. And all of a sudden, you pick up your foot and stop it because you're about to step in something. But somehow you saw that and you stopped with everything that's going on. How is that even possible? And it's because our instinctual level is so highly developed that we can process at levels that we're not even aware of. Yeah, you're taking in signals all the time that you're not really, you don't really, you know, they say there's five <clears throat> senses. I don't <throat> think that's true. I think there's at least seven. There's, a, <laughs> there's at least seven, you know, like... You're always processing all this information. I yeah. mean, whether it's walking downstairs or coming into this room or, I don't know, like bumping into people and trying to identify like how they're feeling. I, I do that all the time. I run into Sherry. I'm like, do I need to ask her this challenging question now or should I wait till later? You know? <laughs> but the thing is you don't even need to ask because you know. And I'm not sure how or why, but yeah. You do. You're perceptive enough. Intuition. And I think that's the piece that the more you tap into that, the more telling it is. Um, I freak out some people sometimes because I just know things, and they just don't even understand how that's possible. But sometimes you just do, and if you really tap into your intuition, you will get things out of people. We were interviewing a student to be a, a graduate assistant in our office to lead tours and stuff like that. These interviews are 10 minutes, 10 minutes max. And uh, two people on my team were conducting the interview. I was just sitting there. I was just listening. They were asking questions, you know, why did you go to Stern, this, that, and the other thing. And most of the time, I just take it in. I don't usually ask a lot of questions. And at the end, they're like, do you have any questions for the candidate? And I was like, yeah. I was like, how long have you wanted to be a teacher? 
and are, is one or both of your parents' teachers. She's like, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. I really do want to go into it probably in the next 10 years. And uh, both my folks are teachers. I'm like, okay, thanks. How did you, what, what did he or she say that That's like some Sherlock keyed Holmes, you in yeah. Yeah. to that particular aspect of her? It's hard to know exactly what it was, but it was really clear um, to me. And usually when I have the instinct, now I ask. I know, and but that's like that's like pretty crazy, right? Crazy. That's yeah. almost like I've seen in the Sherlock Holmes movies. He's like, I noticed with your unsteady gait and a bit of chalk on your sleeve that you might have a proclivity for chalkboards. <laughs> Is it possible that you may be a teacher? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. is that how you're doing it? Yeah. There's more wear on your left sleeve. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, near as I can tell, the my best indicator there was the way she spoke, because teachers have a way that they speak, and there's sort of that sound, right? You know it. And so I sort of was under the impression, I think, that she had parents who were teachers because that's how she may have adopted this, the kind of speech. And then she probably wanted to go into teaching because it seemed like she had that way about how she communicated. But that was processing after the fact, and it's merely a hypothesis. The thing that's most remarkable is she wasn't at all surprised by the question, wasn't at all thrown by the question, or where, like, where did this come from? Of course, the two people on my team afterwards looked at me like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was that? <laughs> but that, that, that happens, and I think the more that... So you know a lot more than you think you know, and the more you can tune into that, the more powerful everything is. And I think that's one of the pieces that I, I, you know, I really wish there was more sort of teaching and practice on that. Because but, I mean, you, have you put that into the admissions process? Because we know that you have retooled some of the admissions things, specifically in a way that focuses more on the IQ, EQ. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about that and, and why you did that? Is it part of what you're ta- discussing? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, to me, I mean, I think that's the big differentiator for the Sternies is IQ plus EQ. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really the thing. And, and the marketer in me always is trying to figure out how do you express an idea as quickly and as clearly as possible. And to me, I feel like that's one of our biggest differentiators, if not the biggest differentiator amongst the community. In fact, I brought you guys some T-shirts that have the new little uh, graphic, IQ plus EQ. Uh, we got to put this it. on the Instagram. You know, for people that are just listening, it's a beautiful logo with IQ and EQ. There's like a heart in there. There's like a brain kind of thing going on. It's gorgeous. Yeah, and it's short and it's graphic and you get it, right? You see it, you get it instantly. And it's much more powerful than if it was just the letters, right? Because it's a visual. And today it's all about communicating um, through visuals as much, if not more, than, uh, than through letters. So I think it's a very powerful way to kind of succinctly communicate the differentiator. So that, that to me is the thing that really separates the Sternies. So you're really, and that's one of those things which is harder to dimensionalize in sort of standardized ways, right? Like a GMAT test is not going to give you back like some kind of EQ measure. And they're a bummer. Yeah, yeah. It's a four-letter word, right? GMAT is yeah. a four-letter word. So, yeah, you're not going to get that out of that. You're going to get that. I almost kind of talk about sometimes if you're looking at an application, I don't know if you've ever done this, like a piece of paper, you look at it, there's words, but if you let your focus blur, you almost see like images through the words. And it's almost like that's what you need to do with an application is like you have to look at all the facts, but then you actually have to let all the facts blur together and then see through the facts and make a composite of what is the person. Like what is the overall impression and person that you're getting? Because it's not a series of facts, it's a, it's a whole individual. And people are much more um, complex than a bunch of numbers or a bunch of data points. Sherry, this is an art. Yeah, and you know, I think I think what's so challenging as an applicant mm. is that you basically have two points of reference, or a few points of reference, I should say. You have your test scores, obviously. <clears throat> you have your resume and your essays, but then you have 
a an interview that for most of us is very highly practiced and rehearsed. So you're that too is an area where you'll need to sort of blur your vision and look past. You know, when you're when you're speaking to a candidate, is it revealing at all when they acknowledge, you know, flaws in themselves or, you know, reveal their Achilles heel that, you know, makes them human and makes them a right fit for Stern? Absolutely. I think that ultimately, just like if you're talking about marketing, right, it starts with your point of difference. I think when you're talking about your own story in any interview situation, it begins with sort of your essence, your soul, what you're about. And so the sooner that you understand what it is that makes you you, the sooner that you embrace your own like internal freak, right? Your internal freak? Yeah, and become like happy with that, the better. And I think that's, again, part of the journey of the 20s is figuring out what it is that makes you weird, wacky, and cool, and starting to love that. And then starting to just put that out there. Exactly. Own it. Own that. Own that inner yeah. freak. And speaking of weird, wacky, and cool, what makes you weird, wacky, and cool? <laughs> what do you do outside of Stern? <clears throat> Aside from my uh, extrasensory perception. Um, <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, are you feeling a little bit more self-conscious now? No, I'm actually excited to ask um, after this what he sees in my future. <laughs> I feel like we should have a, a globe or a ball that you just like rub and then you like suddenly. Well, yeah, the fact that he can like <laughs> read, read people, he just he's like, yeah, I can like really read people, and I immediately sat differently. And I was like, <laughs> I uncrossed my legs. I was like, hmm, hiding my face. <laughs> yeah, okay, but yeah, but what makes you? Uh, yeah, what's your like eccentricity? Is that a word? Yeah. Sure. But just now. It is now. What makes you eccentric and interesting and, and different? Aside from a very odd name, I think, uh, again, like I think a lot of it comes back to the, the hobbies and interests that I have in many respects. Deal with the sort of like seeing what things can be. So it's a lot of, a lot of things with creativity, with playfulness and inventiveness. So two hobbies that I enjoy a lot and they may seem diametrically opposed. One is improvisational comedy. The other is painting furniture. Those do seem diametrically <laughs> Because one is very orderly and one embraces chaos, right? Which Be- one switched then? Okay, to, to <laughs> me. That is a great well, that's, question. That's true. Well, to me, the, the improv comedy is like the essence of like controlling chaos. I mean, it's just like, like you say banana and then suddenly there's like this yes and associated with banana. Right. You got to make a whole skit. and uh, A whole bunch of answers. A whole bunch of answers. <sighs> like from the chaos of many thoughts comes like your joke. Yeah. Or your thought. And then painting furniture, I mean, that's, there's nothing more orderly than quietly painting furniture alone in your apartment. Well, it's, but it's so transform. <laughs> Both of them are so transformative. You mm-hmm. take one thing, mm-hmm. an object or an idea, and you transform it into something completely different. Oh, so my God. So I think that there yes. is a lot of overlap there. Yes. I see the metaphorical tie-in. Yes. yes. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's all what it is about, right? It's seeing what potential is, seeing what something could be, and being part of that creative process of transformation. So... The interesting thing is you talk about trying to control chaos. You can't control chaos. Oh, that's what makes it chaos. <laughs> you have to embrace it. Huh. And you have to look at the chaos as a gift. The, see, that's the thing is like, um, and probably one of your things is going to be trying to understand how to not control situations. Right? So I would say that you're probably someone who likes to be organized, likes to be prepared, likes to be on top of things, doesn't like it when people are unprepared. Um, drives you kind of crazy when things don't go the way that you expect them to, right? I'm sinking lower in my yeah. chair. <laughs> As he accurately describes me, right. I sink lower in my chair. Right, so you know, it gives you anxiety, right? And you have worries about the future. So the thing is that... Oh, yes. All brutal, of the right? things. Horrible. The thing is that 
you cannot control the world. You cannot control life. You cannot, you know, if you, if you try to fight the river, you drown. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. You can make as many contingency plans as you want, and you can try and think of all the things on the decision tree. You cannot control it. And the thing is, the more you focus on fighting it and controlling it, the more you will miss the true opportunities and gifts that are presented to you. And so the key is, how do you take whatever comes your way and somehow say, this is awesome. This is a gift. I'm going to do something great with this. And it could be the thing that you dreaded the most, the thing that you wanted the least, the most horrible outcome in the world. And if you can really take that and be like, thank you. This is awesome. Then you've really mastered how to embrace chaos. And that's essentially what improv does with yes and. Whatever comes, you have to accept it as a gift. And you can't deny it. You can't worry about it. You just have to keep, just go and move, and move with it. And, you know, like, again, if we're talking water metaphors, uh, a friend of mine once said, you know, when you're sailing, you can't control the wind. But you can adjust your sails. <sighs> yeah. Beautiful, right? It's a good nugget. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's so powerful when you think about it. I mean, I went to improv thinking, I will make jokes. It'll be funny. Ah, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I didn't really expect, like, here's how we have to think about life. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, he- that's heavy. Yeah. It's really, it's, and, and when you start to get practice, and improv's, the, like, people are terrified about improv. And I, to me, there's nothing to be terrified about because basically, like, you have a whole bunch of people. You're all trying to help each other. And it's all made up anyway. Like, who cares? It's like, supportive. There's no stakes. There are no stakes in improv, right? Like, hmm. whereas in life, there are real stakes. Like, this is just, you're playing in a room. So it's a great place to practice when weird stuff comes up. How do you just take it and, and, and sort of do something positive with it? Yeah, don't, so, don't fight the river. Don't fight the river. You will drown. Name of, name of your country album, by the way, if you ever made one. Don't fight the river. <laughs> don't fight the river. <laughs> you will drown. So what's your favorite improv game? And do you have a favorite memory from <laughs> um, doing improv? Yeah, it's funny. One of my friends, uh, he's like, my dad is really, you know, he's a sports guy, and he wasn't really into me doing theater. And, like, I said, you know, he's like, so one time I came home, and dad's trying to, like, you know, bridge the gap. And try this. like, what did you do in theater today, son? We played theater games. Did you win? <laughs> and he was like. Sorry, I almost got a spit take over there. Yeah. You, I think you did get a spit take. Yeah. Sherry is just, uh, listeners, Sherry is spitting out her water due to laughter. <laughs> We, we, used, we used to play the game at, uh, at Thanksgiving and stuff. As kids, we'd have root beer on the table, and you'd always try and tell the punchline right when the person had the root beer in their mouth, so it would be like, come out the nose and burn. That was, like, <laughs> that was sort of the game we played. It's so evil. Yes, but great when you win. Great yeah. when you win. <laughs> yes. Bridging the gap yes. between sports and games <laughs> That's right. once again. Nothing like root beer out the nose. So uh, what was the question? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, it was your, fav- it was your favorite, favorite way. Oh, games. Favorite so, improv game. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, improv has uh, short form and long form, much like, I guess, the taxes do. But uh, so short form <laughs> is very gamey. It's very like uh, whose line is it anyway and stuff. And it's a great way in, in and uh, it's fun. For me, I like long form, which is much more open and a bit more theatrical. So you usually get one suggestion. You can do an entire 30-minute show based on that. And to make it even more interesting, I, I like to do musical improv right now. So we make up whole musicals. So you might come up with a title of, you know, a place, um, and we may do a whole musical based upon that suggestion with choreography, improvised choreography, uh, group numbers, duets, 
Oh, that's you know, like some advanced level stuff It's some right crazy there. stuff. It's some, and I can't really sing, so it makes it even more challenging for the audience. And, Do you want to uh, practice now, though? Oh, <laughs> we can't put him on this. I mean, no? No, well, <laughs> I'm just joking. So that would be the worst thing to say to a comedian is like, oh, you're a comedian, right? Be funny now. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's stand-up, right? Stand-up is basically the audience is like, I dare you to be funny. I d- <laughs> Bring it on. And you sit there stuffing yeah, fries I've in had, your face. I've had two yeah. drinks, so you better be <laughs> funny now. Well, I was, well, we were doing a class the other night, and I... Uh, there's a musical form called a trio, and the trio is basically uh, three different people each do like kind of like a little mini song uh, on their point of view about something. And then what happens is you do these individual parts, and then you overlap them, and they all sing together, and they kind of like have this nice sort of layering. And uh, the suggestion was something you feel strongly about, and someone was, uh, was actually about uh, water bottles, was something that I feel very strongly about. And so the first person came out, and they sang a bit about how they love to buy water bottles and throw them away and waste them, you know. And the next person did a whole thing about, you know, it's all about being green, and, you know, that's how we preserve our planet, and, don't, you know. And so I was the third one, and usually the third has a very different take. And I basically said, you know, I'm water, and I don't really care where I go, so long as I'm allowed to flow. And that was kind of my bit, was like, you know, and at the end it's like, yeah, I'm water, better known as H2O. And so that was kind of the rhyme bit. And so, you know, here I am, like, kind of flowing left and right, you know, kind of like almost like hula movements to left, hula movements to right, just talking about, like, flowing like water. And people were just cracking up because, like, Nobody really expects the take from the point of view of the actual water. Like, how does the water feel about water bottles? And, uh, and it was fun. And so during the very end, when we're all layering all this stuff, you know, because I ended with the H2O, it gave me a really, like, nice, like, H2O. Like, <laughs> kind of ending. The first, third, and fifth, you, like, made a chord out of it? Yes. Yes. I studied music briefly. That, but that's so, that is so cool. <clears throat> I'm, I, there's no doubt that doing improv comedy and just that background just helps that EQ. Oh, yeah. You know? You know, Stern is the only place that has that EQ focus that I'm aware of. And when I was applying, I remember looking at the fact that they had the EQ and thinking to myself, well, like, my personality is important to me. And I remember thinking, like, this is the place for me because of that EQ focus, you know? And I think, like, back to one question about a half hour ago was, was your question about, like, when we're looking for people. And it is about trying to go out and get those people and find those things. And so, yeah, when personality is important to you and you have personality, you have personality, like, it's like, that's what we want. Like, there's such a yin and yang at Stern. There's so many, like, interesting contrasts. And so everyone at Stern is, like, really different. Like, really crazy different, right? different's good. Yeah, different good. And then yet they all have, like, a stern gene, right? Like, you almost, you know a sterny, right? Like, you know who fits because, like, they're down to earth, they're approachable. Like, they're, like, so accomplished and impressive, but yet they're so accessible and real. But they all have their, like, own little, like, thing, right? Everyone has, like, some kind of thing that makes them sort of interesting or different or weird. I mean, that's why you can do this show probably forever because you have a lot of material to work with. You know, you have... I know. People are so interesting. The, yeah, and we, I feel like we've just begun Barely tapping. The yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, tapping into it. But I think what's so interesting about improv is that we spend all of our days being exactly who we're supposed to be, right? You know, you're supposed to be an admissions officer. You're supposed to be a student. You know, I'm a, a sister and, you know, a friend. A busy and, business person. Uh, exactly, a busy business person. And and yet improv, it takes you out. It breaks all of those barriers. It breaks down all those walls. And that's what's so beautiful about your water metaphor. You're like, water can't be contained by a water bottle. <laughs> yeah. I will flow yes. as I want to. <clears throat> 
how do you get people? I will change into a gaseous state. <laughs> <laughs> how do you use your improv <clears throat> and your marketing and get people to flow in the interview? Oh, yeah, that's easy. Mostly it's about having a conversation, right? So I usually start off with something which is very softball. I try and find something in the application that I find interesting. Usually someone leaves some kind of nugget lying around, you know, on their resume in the interest line or somewhere in the hobbies. And you can usually tell, like, okay, here's like a point, like if, like if you think about like a needle when the needle like kind of pops up, there's usually something which is like, oh, that seems interesting. Oh, they seem excited about that. And you have that intuition as to what that is. And so whenever you find that loose string, you kind of pull on that string, right? Um, just like if you're doing an analysis. If there's a number that's an outlier, you will pull on that number and you'll get more out of your analysis. So for me, it's about starting somewhere there. First of all, it's easy. Like if, you know, if one of your passions is, uh, is knitting, right, then I would talk with you about knitting and we'll start there and we'll start talking about knitting. Like what is one of your passions, for example? Uh, cooking. Cooking. Certainly, yes. Okay. And uh, what do you plan to do post-MBA? I will be in human resources at Citigroup. Terrific. Okay. So if I said to you, you know, why do you love cooking? I love that I can take different uh, ingredients and I don't need to follow a recipe because I really don't like being told what to do. You're not the, you're not the <laughs> We've all noticed. We've all noticed. <laughs> you're not the scientific yeah. cook, right? There's, oh, like, there's two kinds, right? Yes. There's like, the like, I will follow the formula precisely, like one cup exactly of butter. Exactly. Yeah. And then there's like to taste. When, when a recipe tells me, you know, two tablespoons of butter, I go, how about three? Yeah. It will taste better. <laughs> I, double, I double dare you. <laughs> I'm going to throw another stick of butter. Uh, right? And New Paula Dean over here. <laughs> right. So that's kind of like something that you love and you're into. And, and so for you, you probably find it cathartic. You probably find it a chance to be free, a chance to be expressive, a chance to be completely in the moment, not worried about the future, not thinking about the past. Just like, you know, something where you're in charge, you have control, and you can do whatever you want. And you only need to delight yourself. Exactly. Of course, you like it when other people love it. But for you, it's about the process, right? Yes, it okay. is. And so how is cooking like being an HR person? Oh, wow. Dean Gologli, you've done it again. I know. <laughs> you've done it again. Well, I think, you know, in a very metaphorical sense, you know, when you're in HR, you're taking all of these really disparate ingredients and, and you're trying to make something of it. You're taking every individual is a different puzzle of the team. It's yeah. like a different ingredient in the recipe. Yep. And you're trying to make something delicious and well-balanced and hearty. And mm -hmm. it is your job as that HR person to pull the strings together and to deliver something that can produce. And you definitely can't use a recipe, right? Because no. you need to add as you need to add to form the perfect blend of people. Right. And that's part of the fun of it. That's part of the challenge of it. Right. And so now here we are having a conversation. It's actually you've probably never thought about it this never. way. Right? By the way, that's how it's done, everybody. Just, you know, <laughs> interview and answer. That's how it's done. You yeah. just got a little so tutorial. So did I get into Stern? <laughs> <laughs> you are admitted again. <laughs> you can come again. Uh, so but that's kind of what I do sometimes in the interview. Right. Is I sort of talk about things that they're interested in, why they're interested in. Then it gives me a lot more insight as to who they are, what they're about. And then I often do like these compare and contrast or bridges into them as a professional. Now, you could have never in a million years, most likely, unless you're listening to this particular, you know, and applying, thought that I'm going to make that kind of connection. 
And at first you're like, whoa, there's no answer to this. But then instantly, of course, there's a million, there's a thousand answers. And then you feel good. It's like, I came up with an answer on the spot. And it's a really good answer, right? And it's not canned either. No. You know what? I pun think intended. Oh, that's right. Second pun, everybody. Because <laughs> you're not going to use canned, canned ingredients in your answer. Never. Yes. Second pun of the day, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. No, now we're cooking. Yes. <laughs> four, three. Let's, yes. let's get to four. Let's get yes. four puns by the end of this podcast. I believe we, we can stir right. the pot. I'm sure we can come up with a few more. Just four. turn up the heat and we'll get yeah. there. Five. Well, I think it mattered that she cared about both things. Yes. Because that's how she instantly made a connection. Because she didn't have to think about the right answer. She just knew in her heart how those two things mattered to her. And I bet when you were listening and you heard her talk about cooking and you knew in the back of your mind there's HR, were you already making connections? I mean, I was, but I had no idea how she was going to bring it together because I don't cook at all and I'm not involved in HR. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) But didn't it make sense when she said she wants to do HR and she was talking about cooking? 100%. Right? Like it makes all the sense in the world. It made all the sense. And see, that's the thing is like, And so now we've really learned about kind of what makes you tick, right? It's about kind of this combining of elements, right? So I bet if we were to go back and look at what you did in grade school and high school, you were probably the person who has a group of friends in many different fields. You were the one who kind of brought them all together around parties and events, right? Like, and you were always the one who like brought the little mix of parties and different people and figured out how they would combine and what activities they would like to do, right? Am I wrong? No, you're so right. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, uh, wow. yeah, that's... That's interesting. Okay, so but so that's how you get people to open up. Yeah. Exactly what you're doing right now, which is you know drawing all these connections. Yeah. You know, getting people out of their box, out of their canned stories, yeah. and into who who they are and what what makes them tick. Yeah, oh. at their at their essence, really. Yeah. And that be yourself. Like, yeah, exactly. And that and try to discover that right because ultimately. That's what the interview should be. It should be revealing. It should be, and you know, you'll probably remember this conversation. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if you had if you told this conversation to like five more people, right? And so that also makes the interview memorable. If you're going to learn something in the interview, what's two years going to be like? So I try to have the interview be memorable, insightful for me, for them, and it's just all a process of self-discovery. So, and it should be kind of fun, right? Like it's kind of a fun thing to talk about, and. You know, I mean, what, like, then you think about, like, what would the next question be, right? Like, so you sort of like, what was the what was the thing that you were most interested to hear about next then? Oh, from her? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I thought she was going to maybe talk about, like, the alchemy of making something from nothing. Oh. Didn't have to continue going right. there. But I'm just saying, like, it, I found that to be an interesting conversation. Making something from nothing. Well, just the two, the conversation you guys were having <clears throat> in, like, the mock interview. Yeah. I, I was interested, and I, again, don't necessarily care about HR, and I am not a cook. Yeah. But I, I found something interesting about that just from the connection point. And I, th- I would actually argue that it's more about, like, making something from what you've got. Right? Because, mm. I mean, sometimes you probably just, like, whatever's in the house, like, or apartment or... Yeah. Like, like you, you got to deal <laughs> with what you box. have. Or shoe box. Right. Yeah. yeah. You got to deal with what you got, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, what can I kind of make yeah, out you, of this? If you don't have eggs, you know, you're not uh. making... Whatever needs eggs. Huh? Yeah, Scrambled everything. Eggs. Everything needs <laughs> eggs. Basically, Basically everything, everything yeah. needs yeah. eggs. Okay, better. If you don't have bananas, you're not making banana bread. You're making bread. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that, Bananaless bread. Is that fair? <clears throat> so that's really interesting. And if you're either applying to Stern yeah. or you're somebody that's going to go get a job after Stern, though, that's something you can you can use as like an important lesson with a handy demo for everybody. There you go. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, so we're, we're almost out of time. Yeah. There's so much stuff that we have talked about today that has been insightful to both of us. We, I mean, I've really appreciated you coming in and like telling sure. us all this stuff. Is there any one big takeaway that you'd want people to get out of this interview before we wrap? Yeah, like I said, I think the biggest thing is really a couple things. Uh, one, really 
you know, try and figure out what makes you actually genuinely happy, what you love doing, what you like doing. I talk about breadcrumbs all the time. If you think about what you loved doing when you were a kid, it's probably what you should be doing now, you know? Right? Like, so if you were playing in the Easy Bake Oven, you know, at age five or whatever, like, you know, like maybe that's the kind of, you know, and if it's not exactly that, it's metaphorically that. So trying to really figure out what it is you love, and it's very hard to hold yourself to the mirror and see that, but if you really start to dive into what do I always wind up doing, what do I always love doing, like, these are the kinds of things that you maybe should be doing professionally, and that comes back to, again, sort of knowing yourself, embracing yourself, being yourself, being happy about it, you know, and then those are the things that will make you happy, and, and really that's the only thing you need to do is be happy in life and make yourself happy. So the more that you know what it is you love and who, what you're about and what you're into, just go for it. And if people don't like it, tough luck. Tough luck, everybody. Tough luck. But even more important than for people to do something that you find meaning. Yeah. Do something that makes you happy. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's some, something we can all focus on. So I, I tell you what, uh, Dean Gologli. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. This Thank was a so lot much. of fun. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Did you have fun? I had fun. That's I knew great. I was going to have fun. We uh, we loved it. We really did. Yeah. What do you think, Sherry? Thank you so much for being here. We loved it. Great episode. Yeah. Thank you. 